0: Oh, the mystery of Christmas. That's our, uh, the title not only of our series of messages, but also um, the title of what we're going to be doing at Christmas Eve as well. Didn't the choir look good, sound good today, don't you think? I think so. And uh, what we're going to be doing this year, as we did last year, we're just combining really our Christmas Eve service. And rather than just make that kind of like an unusual service, maybe kind of really solemn or whatever we, uh, excuse me, we've had it before. We're going to bring in the choir orchestra. We're going to have our Christmas musical really that night and all the music that goes with that. And then we're also going to be, of course, having a message as well. And so, you can invite your friends. This is the time that they can come and they can see uh, what is best, really, about our church with all the music, the friendliness of our church, and they're going to hear a gospel message as well. And so, uh, make sure you invite your friends. Get the best news tracks out here in the atrium. Uh, Continue to pass those out. You know, we've had a lot of people go on that QR code and uh, hear the gospel. Uh, verbally, as I presented on the website. We've had many, many of those. And so if you pass those out, a lot of times people are just going to get curious and uh, go to that QR code and do that. So make sure you get those best news tracks as well. Well, we want to look at this morning at the book of joy, and that is the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn there in chapter one, we're going to be looking at this verse. You know, the Bible says in Luke chapter two, as we're looking, at the, we look at the Christmas story. It says, "Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy." Say that with me: "Great, great." Yes, and John Stott, the great theologian, said this: "The main mark of a Christian is joy." Now, where is that joy exactly? How can we, you say, well, Pastor, how can we have joy? Well, joy is a lot more than what we're talking about at Christmas time where you invite all your friends and family to come for a dinner. Uh, we're not really talking about just the joy at Christmas Eve service or going to church. What the Bible speaks of is the joy coming to us, it means a permanent settling of joy in our life. And you're thinking to yourself, well, my, my children are coming home. Uh, for Christmas, maybe you're estranged a little bit from a family member, maybe even a child. How can you have joy in that? How can you have joy when you wonder where the money's going to come from to buy the Christmas presents? How can you have joy with many of you going through the physical problems that you're having right now? Some of you are facing maybe disease or surgery. How can I really have the joy? Well, here's the thing if God and problems coexist in this world, then if we have God in our life, we already have problems in our life, then God and problems must coexist. So where does that bring the joy about in our life? We wanna look at the book of Philippians because as I said, this is really the book of joy. 16 times in this book, Paul mentions the word joy or rejoice. And the irony to the whole thing as he's writing this letter, because most letters are written to churches that are having problems and he's addressing those problems. But their problem was Paul's problem. They were concerned about Paul. Paul was the one that was in prison. He's writing this letter from a prison and he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, He's allowed to go out in the courtyard and preach the gospel. But really, his whole ministry is curtailed. His whole ministry, as far as the church at Philippi is concerned, is dead. You know, why would God do this? And they're concerned about him. And Paul says, hey, don't be concerned about me. I have joy in my heart. Now, how does he do that? Well, in the midst of all this, he addresses four different joy thieves in our life. And he says, basically, in chapter one, you have problems. We're going to be addressing those right now. You, in chapter two, he says, you're going to have people problems. People will steal your joy. Nobody can steal your joy like somebody you love. And then in chapter three, possessions or the lack thereof can often steal your joy. And finally, worry, chapter four, worry over all those other things will also steal joy from your life. And so he opens up this book and we need to understand we can experience joy in any circumstances that we find ourselves in. Let's look at verse three of chapter one. He first of all greets everyone. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my, you all, you know that he's a Southerner, Paul is a Southerner, you all, it's right here. I, I never find used guys in here. I, I just never find that. He says, uh, For you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this that he has begun a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to the rest of the text in just a moment. But let me just say this. There are three things I want to look at this morning. Three questions basically we want to answer. And the first thing is, is why do we need it? What is this joy and why is it so necessary in life? Well, we look at this and we look at the word joy in verse 4. But also it's in verse 18. It's in chapter 2, verse 2 all throughout the book, 16 different times. This word joy means to rejoice, exalt. It means to boast. Now, you say that's strange, but it's actually the same word used in this verse. Paul used it this way in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That word boast means, comes from a word in the Greek meaning a branding, a branding iron. And so he says, look, Paul says, the branding of a Christian is joy. Now, you know in the business world they have different brands, and you know maybe Nordstrom's I've heard is customer service and they say, oh, this is the, you know, the greatest store because we treat you like a king. That's their brand politically. You, you go on the political shows on either way. I don't care what the problem is, what the circumstance is, certain people are going to give the same answers every time. Every time. That's their brand. The Bible says the brand, Paul says the brand of a Christian is this joy. And you say, well, I don't experience that all the time. But we need to understand that happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness, as I've said many times before, depends on something happening in your life. It depends on the circumstances. Happiness and adverse circumstances cannot usually coexist in your life. And the uh, website happiness.com, yes, there is a website to that. I've looked it up. A few years ago... And it still, still may be up there now as far as these five things. The website is up there. I just checked again. But it says five things you need for happiness, five things. First of all, be in possession of the basics. Well, I don't know what that is. I have no idea. 50 years ago, it was determined that was about 90 different basic needs of every American. And now it's over 1,000, according to surveys. So I don't know, if, if, do we ever have the basics? Secondly, get plenty of sleep. Thirdly, have good relationships. Fourthly, take care of yourself and others. And lastly, have something worthwhile to do. That that website says, and it's not a Christian website, but the website says, in order to be happy, you've got to have those five things. Now, the problem is, it's very seldom we really have all five of those things. So what is joy? What is it dependent upon? A verse that was recited just a few moments ago in our service in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The secret is the presence of God. When Jesus Christ came down to this earth, it says, uh, we will call his name Emmanuel. I think it's Matthew 123. We will call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. So God being with us is the secret, the foundation at least, to joy. How do we have that? By receiving Jesus into our heart. Once we do that, we've said the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside your heart. So if he comes to live inside your heart, the Bible says the fruit, the results of the Holy Spirit living in your heart, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, et cetera. The second one's joy, a joy in your life how do we get that? I mean, after all, you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I just don't, I just don't necessarily feel that. But hear, hear me now. God and problems coexist. God's in your heart. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit in your heart brings joy. There are problems in life already. There are always going to be problems in life. You, we live in a sinful world, and no matter how that sin affects and where it comes from, it affects us. It may be your sin. It may be somebody else's sin. It may be just because we're, in, we're living in a sinful world. God may use something in your life, adversity, to grow you up as a Christian, to bring, maybe even bring you to Christ. But nevertheless, there are problems in this life. So if God and problems coexist in the same world, and God's in your heart, and the problems are in your heart, then joy of the Lord and adversity problems can coexist in your life. In fact, they have to. And we look at this and we we understand that we as believers have a lot more difficulty grasping and understanding the whole idea of problems, adversity, suffering in the life of a Christian than the lost person does, the unbeliever. The unbeliever that maybe doesn't believe in God, and many of them do at least believe in God, but they they don't believe in the God of the Bible. And they may say, well, there are problems in the world because God doesn't love us. There are problems in the world because God loves us, but he's not powerful enough to really grasp the problems. And therefore, we really can't uh, blame him for anything. Other people blame God. Other people don't believe in God. But we as believers think to ourselves, well, I know God's an all-loving God, and at the same time, he's an all-powerful God, so why do I have these problems in my life? And we go even further in depth. For example, you have a man like um, William Borden. I, I've shared maybe the story years ago about him, pretty famous story now, of the uh, really heir to the Borden milk um, dynasty. And he went off on a mission trip in China. And I don't even really think it's a mission trip, I think he, he went over there to study, got burdened for the people. And he came back, he says, I believe I'm called to the mission field. Well, at one point, he had to renounce any claim over the business. Then he had to go and and, and go to school all those years after graduating from Yale with with another degree. Then he went to, of course, language school. Then he got over to, to China, I believe it was, and he died on the way over of a fever. All that preparation... All that sacrifice and his, his ministry was just cut off. What kind of ministry could William Borden had, have had if he would remained alive? God, I don't understand that. I mean, he did all that preparation. He had all that influence in the world. And yet his ministry was just totally cut off. And we don't get it. We don't understand it. We, we grapple with it. Notice, though, what. Paul says, I'm going to skip all the way over to verse 12 for just a moment. We'll come back to the, our, our regular text. But he just says this. I just want to read this to you. I want you to know, brothers, that what I've happened to me has really served to the advance of the gospel. He says, I'm in prison. I'm chained to a Roman guard. Uh, I'm not suffering, but my ministry has been greatly curtailed so that it was become known throughout the whole Imperial guard, and to all the rest, that my my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of my of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, but by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do this out of love, knowing that I put I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in the imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. He says, look, I'm going to find the silver lining here. I'm going to find out what's really happening. And I want you to know I'm chained to these Roman guards and I'm I'm sharing the gospel with a Roman guard who has access to Romans. And I'm witnessing these people every day. Every day, probably three or four guards every day, and they're being saved, and they're taking the gospel other places. Not only that, but because of my absence, people think, well, somebody's got to take up the mantle. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to step up. Like in football, one man goes down, another man's got to step up. Well, other people were stepping up, and they were sharing the gospel, but let me take it a step further. Paul says, look, I understand something else and it's even, it's even more so that I rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it was eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with, with that full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body body, whether by life, or by death for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's saying, look, this is for my deliverance. I need this. I need this. In order for me to become more like Jesus Christ, which he says, by the way, in Philippians uh, chapter three, he talks about becoming more like Christ. That That is the goal of his life. He says, in order for that to do do that, and I would come forth as gold, I need this. I need to come off the rigors of the mission field. I, I need to come off the stress That goes with starting church after church and raising up people to take those churches as I leave. Somehow I needed this to come apart, to get closer to God, to influence people in a different way. I need this for my own good. And he's saying this. This joy that's in my heart has become a strength. In fact, Nehemiah 8.10 says this. It says, for the joy of the Lord is my strength. I need joy to resist temptation. Why do I need that? Well, because I'm thinking, okay, I'm I'm pressed with this temptation. Should I yield? Should I not yield? Well, if I yield, I'll give up my joy. Now, the problem is sometimes with people yielding, they're not experiencing the joy in their life. Jesus Christ is not really making a difference in their emotions. And therefore, they go ahead and yield to the temptation. We need the strength to make it through the, the trials of life, to not quit, so we can receive the promise of God. Problems and joy coexist. I remember Pam and I, um, when we first got married, I was living in this uh, uh, place called, and you know, I'm sure it's out of business, so they can't sue me, Alexander Apartments in Toccoa, Georgia. And it was really, really cheap, I think 75 bucks a month or something. And so you can imagine, you get what you pay for. But um, I was in this apartment, and it was just not conducive at all. So we, we got, there's an, another opening. So we went into this a little apartment downstairs on about the second floor, I think it was. And um, we had a problem. You know, we had, the, the bedroom was so small, the bed had to go right up against the, the window. And there was a breeze, not, it was a breeze coming through the window. And I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And finally, I thought, okay, there's, oh, we need some caulking up here. You know where you, the window closes and you put the lock on it. You know where I'm talking about? But it it, it was a gap there. And so I got some caulking and I put it in there and I started squirting and it went all the way through. That's how, that's how large the gap was. And I had to go back and forth with it like that in order to get the thing closed up. But if I laid over toward the window, and that was my side real close, I could still feel the coldness. So I had to get away from it a little bit. You see, it was cold outside. Believe it or not, Dakota, Georgia does get cold, and it rains a lot. Man, you think you're in the rainforest sometimes. But it gets cold. Now, it's cold outside, but there was heat on the inside. The heat overcame the coldness. But if I got too close to the window, the cold overcame the heat. So you see, it depends on what you're closest to. God can overcome. The joy can overcome the problems, or the problems can overcome the joy. So how do you get there? Three things we see mentioned in this passage. Look back to verse 3 with me. Three things. First of all, if we're going to find joy in our life, we must be grateful for what we have In verse three, it says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in prayer of mine for you all making prayers with joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, I'm grateful. Now, this is just a general statement. He makes this a lot in every book that he writes, how thankful he is for certain things. You see, you and I will never, can I make this statement? You will never have a joyful life unless you have a grateful heart. You just won't. And you say, well, how can you you possibly say that? Because, now get the chain here. Faith, faith and hope lead to joy. You cannot have faith and hope if you look to the past and see nothing or see nothing in the past or rather negative in the past. If all we're doing is concentrating on the negative things, the prayers that God did not answer when he's answered so many prayers for you, he has. And if we just concentrate on that, then how can we believe him for the future? I mean, we we do this in our minds, in in your own relationship. Somebody says, well, I'm gonna do that for you. I'm gonna do that for you. Have you ever come across somebody that promises everything and does nothing? You know, they, they make empty promises. Oh, let me take care of that for you. I'll do that for you. And and the next time you mention it, oh, let me take care of that for you. Do you you know you already said that and haven't done anything? When that happens, you have no confidence in that person. So you read the Bible promise after promise after promise. And the only thing we think about is all of our expectations with God and all the things that maybe he hasn't answered as yet, or he said no to because it wasn't the best thing for us. And we forget about all the wonderful blessings really he has given us. All of them. One of the great things about our young people, in particular, going to Brazil and other places, Honduras and Guatemala, I think it was, and and all the mission trips that they get to take, they get to see the poverty. They get to see the poverty, and they have an opportunity to come back so much more grateful than what they went to before. This word actually comes from the word Eucharist, and in the Catholic Church, they use that for the Lord's Supper. And so, this is pointing, this gratitude is pointing to the cross. So, if nothing else, aren't you you so grateful that you've been forgiven of everything that you've ever done? You know how hard that is? You know how difficult that was for God? Being thankful, looking to the past. I've said in in the book I wrote a few years ago that really faith stands in tension between the no longer and the not yet. You look at the no longer, you got, oh, look at this, what, God answered this prayer and this one and this one and this one and he did this for me. Boy, I can believe him for that promise in the future. But if you think about, I've said this before, but, In our marriages, a marriage counselor wrote a book one time, and he said he'd done a lot of surveys, and he said he he was discovered that all of us are satisfied with our marriages about 95%. But it's the 5% that drives us crazy. The 5% that gives us problems. Why do we do that? Because we never think about the 95%. It's always critiquing. You know, you like 95%. Of the things about me. That's the 5% that drive you nuts, right? No, but really it's, well, you know, I, I really enjoyed that sermon, but I enjoyed that song, but it's always a critique and we're critiquing God. Be grateful for what he has done. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Are you grateful? What are you grateful for? I would challenge you every morning to get up and whether you do it in your quiet time or get in the shower, on your way to work, think about two or three things that you're really grateful for. Not the same things every day. Just have that attitude. This is what is going so well in my life. Otherwise, you'll never be able believing for the future, you won't have the hope, you won't have the faith, and therefore, you're really gonna struggle with the joy, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But secondly, be confident in where you are going. Be grateful for the past, but be confident in where you are going. He says in verse six, I am confident in this very thing. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, it says, for the day of Christ. He's looking toward the future. And he's looking toward the future. He says, look, God has begun a good work in you. Now, he's meaning that in a couple of different ways. You have to understand that he started this church. And so he was there when it all began. He says, wow, God has really, boy, God was really all over it. You know, God was in it. We planted this church. We did it together together. But he's also talking about their personal life. They're forgiven of sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross for them. He says, I'm confident in the way you've started. And I'm confident in the way what God is going to do in your life. Philippians 3.10 says this. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. Becoming like him into his death. Paul's goal was to become like Jesus Christ. And he's confident that they would have the same goal and be going the same way. He wants them to attain maturity in the Lord. And he says, when you do that, when you look at the big big picture, what's going to happen? You can, you can take the little picture. You can take what's going on now if you have hope of something that's going to happen in the future. Jesus put it this way in John 16. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that's always important, you know, when he says truly. Truly true. In fact, when he says it twice, pay attention. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. It's talking about his arrest and crucifixion, resurrection. He gives this example. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. This hour, every time you see the book, the old phrase hour in the book of John, it's talking about his coming, right? Second coming. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I know labor is very uh, intensive. And nowadays, I guess they've gone back to epidurals and painkillers and things like that, maybe. But some of you have given natural childbirth and uh, I, I don't know how that feels. I was in the birthing room three times, but I don't know really how it feels, just how it looks. Looks like it is very painful, all right? But, you know, the old saying is, the old saying is, you know, if, if, if men had to have every other baby, no family would have more than three babies, you know? <clears throat> have to think about that one for just a moment. Let's set in, settle, settle there. But here's the picture Jesus gives. He says, oh, the labor's bad. It's very painful. And once the baby is born, the pain is still there. I mean, the aftereffects of the pain. I mean, just like some of you men that have gone through surgery of some type. I remember the only surgery I can remember, I guess, I've ever gone through is appendicitis, appendectomy. And I remember going to sleep. It, it took uh, two seconds for me to go out. And then when I was waking up, I thought I was still going to sleep. That's how fast it happened. And one of the reasons I felt that the surgery had not taken place yet, it was still hurting. I still had the pain because of the incision and the messing around on my insides, you know. So when you have a baby, you still feel the pain, but the joy of having the baby, as the illustration goes, overcomes the pain. It's secondary to the pain. And he's saying this, look, we live, in a, we live in a bad world. We live in a suffering world. But when you have the hope that's set before you, when that, that hope really is assured in your heart, it's not that the coldness is still not going to be there, but the heat is going to overcome the cold. It's not the pain and the suffering is suddenly going to be alleviated from all of our lives forever and forever. That's, that's not going to be until heaven. But he's pointing to heaven here over and over and over again. He's pointing to the church at Philippi, knowing that they are going through suffering that we would never experience here in America. But he said there's hope. And once you die, you're going to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, and all that pain is going to be gone. And be nothing but rejoicing. And when God gives you victory here in this life, it's pointing to that time that all suffering and all tears will be wiped away forever. He said, that's your hope. That's your joy. That's what you have to look forward to. And here's the thing about hope. We said last week or two weeks ago, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You have hope and that leads to joy. For example, some of you here, um, we'll just say you're going through some financial difficulties and you don't know how you're gonna pay your bills. And somebody comes to you. An angel of the Lord appears to you. Okay, I'm making this up as I go along. You're the angel of the Lord appear. An angel appears to you and say, "Hey, relax, no problem. Next week, you're going to win 125 million dollars in the lottery." And I know what you're thinking, Pastor. I cannot believe you even gave that illustration. The ungodliness of it all. If you won. You wouldn't be thinking, you know, the devil's had that money long enough. I'll take it. It's just a story, just an illustration, all right? Here's the thing. If you were told that, you wouldn't say, boy, that gives me hope. I can pay my bills now. No, there'd be a big smile come over your face. Why? Because when you're given hope, it not only gives you a peace, But when you're given hope, you have joy in your heart. And without that faith, you won't have the hope. And without the hope and faith, you you well, what do you have to have? You've got to have thanksgiving heart. You've got to know where you're going. And let me bring out the last thing, and this is the most important thing. If you haven't heard anything so far, you can nudge your husband right now, and he can wake up, and we'll we'll finish this out. All right. But this is the crucial thing, and it comes down to this over and over and over again. I want you to notice that lastly, you need to be clear in what you want. In verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection. Of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of the Lord, filled with the fruit of the righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Then, as we've read the rest of this passage, we look to verse 21 as the key verse in the whole book. And it says this For me to live as Christ and to die his game. Paul's secret to being in prison and thinking of it, you know, I could be out there with thousands and I could be preaching the word of God to thousands of people. And here I am, one Roman guard. The secret to it all, the key to it all, the foundation to it all. Are you listening? Was his definition of life. His definition of life for me he says the most important thing the most important thing is Christ for me to live is how do you how do you complete that sentence well i'd be happy if i i won something because you know for me to live is security for me to live is money for me to live is my family for me to live is you complete it my career what brings you joy in life? Define that. If you will define what brings you the greatest joy in life, you will define your life. That'll be your definition of life. And Paul says, look, this, if I can just read Paul's mind here, just for a moment, based on the rest of the book, he would say, for me to live is Christ. If there was something that could harm my relationship with Christ i would be crushed if there was something that would happen that god would abandon me i would be crushed but money no it doesn't have much effect on me where i'm living whether it's in prison or somewhere else it doesn't have that much of effect on me really it doesn't cause me to give up doesn't cause me to blame god for anything But boy, if God were to take away his presence in my life, because for me to live is Christ. The joy of my life is my relationship with God. And that's how he defined it. Paul's definition of life allowed him to face anything in his life. C.S. Lewis put it this way. When you exchange the glory of God for other things, everything else will break your heart. I was a student at Ticola Falls College, and um, many of you know this, but in 1977 in November, uh, the dam broke. That was, if you just imagine, we're sort of in the mountains, but really kind of in a valley, and there, there's a mountain near us that went up. There was a lake there was a um, man-made dam there. The dam broke, and a 40-acre lake came and flooded the Decolle Falls campus. As it, the river, the little creek river, wound around it, went right around most of the campus. But there were houses all along that creek, and every one of them were flattened as though they'd never existed. A whole dorm that was abandoned by the, because they, they quit doing a high school the year before. Otherwise, all the high school students would have been in that dorm. But it was abandoned. They were going to refurbish it to something else, but they hadn't got to that point yet. They didn't have the money to do that. It was flattened. One of my teachers, uh, Dr. Sproul, um, one of my professors in pastoral ministries, uh, died in that flood along with his three children. His wife, Pat, survived. She was sucked out through it. had a one-room air conditioner It was sucked out. She went right out through it. Somehow made it to the top. Somebody grabbed her, saw a hand sticking up from the muddy water, reached down and grabbed it and pulled her out. Never saw her husband or kids again. And the next day, some reporters interviewed her. The very next day, we were all at the hospital. The hospital was within a walking distance of the campus. We're up there at the hospital calling parents and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're okay. Mrs. Sproul was being interviewed. And they asked her how she felt. And basically she said, I may, this is what she said, I'll, I may never be happy again. She's crying the whole time. I may never be happy again. But there is joy. I still have my joy in the Lord. You see, bad circumstances and joy fit together. They got to go together. We're not talking about happenstance. We're talking about the presence of God in our life, being felt in our life. How does that come? With the definition of life. It comes with knowing that God's doing a work in your life and you being confident to the very end, that he's working everything together like a puzzle that you cannot see to make you more like him and more victorious and more impactful for the cause of Christ. But it also means that you're looking at all this stuff from the past and you're saying, thank God, thank God that you're doing these things in my life and thank God for all the blessings you've given me. Because of this, I can, I can, trust you with the future. I can trust you with that. You say, I just feel abandoned. I feel alone. Listen to what this verse says. The Lord has forsaken me, said Zion, but my my God has forgotten me. Then it responds, God's response, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget Yet I will not forget you. So how do you get started? You get started by just, as a believer, saying, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redefine my life. God, would you help me? I can't, I've got so many things going on in my life. There's no way I can just say the joy of my heart is Jesus when I know the joy of my heart is something else. God, only you can change that. Would you change my heart? I'm a believer, I I, I'm, I'm easily mold, molded. Would you do that? And then if you're not a believer, there's no way that you can have joy. You're just going to depend on happenstance, circumstances to make you happy. The promise of the Lord is his presence in your life. If you'll receive him into your heart. And I'm going to invite you to do that right now with heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around. The quietness of this moment I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus. Would you do that right now by praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud? Lord God, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for my sins. I open up my heart and I ask you to come in. Please forgive me of everything that I've done. Make me the person that you want me to be. Help me to find my joy in you. Help me to redefine my life. That for me to live will be Christ. And then to die is gain. Help me to believe that. Help me to live that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.